turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 13 this morning. 1 Chronicles chapter 13. It's been a good day in the Lord's house so far, hasn't it? Did I not believe in the centrality of the Word of God? I think I'd just say amen and go home. It's been a good day. But let's see what God has for us in the Word today. 1 Chronicles chapter 13. If you're visiting with us this morning, we have been for a while in a series of lessons we can learn from the life of David. And we want to continue that today. First Chronicles 13, beginning in verse 1. Then David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and, it, and if it is of the Lord our God, let us send out to our brethren everywhere who are left in all the land of Israel, and with them to the priests and Levites who are in their cities and their common lands, that they may gather together to us. And let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we have not inquired at it since the days of Saul. Then all the assembly said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David gathered all Israel together from Shihor in Egypt to as far as the entrance of Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kirjath, Jerem. And David and all Israel went up to Bala, to Kirjath, Jerem, which belonged to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God the Lord, who dwells between the cherubim, where his name is proclaimed. So they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. Then David and all Israel played music before God with all their might, with singing on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on cymbals, and with trumpets. And when they came to Chidon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and he struck him, because he put his hand to the ark, and he died there before the Lord. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. Therefore, that place is called Perez-Uzzah, which means breach against Uzzah, or outburst against Uzzah, to this day. David was afraid of God that day, saying, how can I bring the ark of God to me? So David would not move the ark with him into the city of David, but took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house three months, and the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom in all that he had. Father God, thank you so much for the word, and I pray now, Father, that you'll fill me with your spirit and help us, Lord, as we look at this important topic today. Lord, I pray that where we need to be broken down in our thinking about some of these things, that you'll do that. I pray, Father, today that we will know that your way is the right way and the only way. And I pray we'll know it with all of our hearts. Lord, if there are those today who need to know this with respect to their soul, with respect to salvation, Lord God, I pray you do a work today. That, uh, Lord, you would just break down every barrier. You would not allow any distraction. And, Lord, you would just work. Help us, Father, as we think about this passage of scripture. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, first steps are always interesting, aren't they? And instructive for that matter. When a first when a person begins a new job or takes a new office, the first things they do are always of some interest. It tells us a lot about that person. I was reading where on April thirtieth, seventeen eighty nine, George Washington took office. In New York, he was the first president of the United States, as you might have heard. And in his inaugural address, he began his duties by giving thanks to God. 
for the blessings the new country had received and was going to receive. Let me read you just a little bit about what he said. He said, it would be peculiarly improper to omit in this first official act my fervent supplications to that almighty being who rules over the universe, who presides in the councils of nations, and whose providential aids can supply every human defect, that his benediction may consecrate to the liberties and happiness of the people of the United States a government instituted by themselves for these essential purposes and may enable every instrument employed in its administration to execute with success the functions allotted to his charge. He went on. But his first act, he prayed for the country. Oh, for another George Washington. Oh, for a person who not only prayed as his first act in office, but actually believed in Almighty God and believed in prayer. Well, David is now finally the king of all Israel. And what we see here in this passage is his first official act, or at least the first one that is recorded for us. He has conquered the previously unconquerable city of Jerusalem, and he has set up his headquarters there. It is his kingdom now. It is referred to as the city of David, and he is beginning his reign. And his first act as king over all of the United Kingdom is to say, let's bring back the Ark of the Covenant to us. The Ark of the Covenant, which was the focus of God's presence with his people. Bring it back into Jerusalem. Reestablish the centrality of worship in the center of his kingdom. I think the key verse in this chapter is verse number three, where he says, let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we have not inquired at it since the days of Saul. David wanted to start out right. He wanted to start out with God at the center of his kingdom. Now, it's an interesting story that we read there, isn't it? Let me paraphrase it for you just a little bit. I'm sure there's some questions that are jumping into your mind as we think about that story. He wanted to return the Ark of the Covenant uh, to the center of his kingdom, and so he sought the will of the people in doing so. They all agreed, and they devised this interesting plan for bringing it to Jerusalem. They took the Ark and they placed it on this shiny new cart, and they headed for Jerusalem. But along the way, something unfortunate happened. The oxen stumbled. The cart shook, the ark looked like it might fall off, and Uzzah, who we know nothing about this fellow other than this, Uzzah, fearing that the ark might fall to the ground, reached up and touched it. He just put his hand on it to steady it so that it wouldn't fall to the ground. And immediately God struck him dead. And David and all the rest of the people were appalled, as you can imagine they would be. We would have been too. And fearful and angry. And they halted the proceedings and shunted the ark off to uh, the house of Obed-Edom, and there it sat. They didn't go any further toward Jerusalem. Now, it would be a sad story. It would be a strange story in the Bible if it ended there, but fortunately it doesn't end there. We could jump ahead just a little bit. We could skip chapter 14 and jump over to chapter 15, and you'll see that eventually it did have a good ending. Let's just read a few verses of that so that we get, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. First Corinthians, or what did I say? First Corinthians. First uh, Chronicles chapter 15, look at verse number 1. David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. And then David said, No one may carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. And David gathered all Israel together at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place which he had prepared for it. Then David assembled the children of Aaron and the Levites. Jump down to verse number 11. 
And David called for Zadok and Abiathar the priests and for the Levites, for Uriel, Asiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Aminadab. He said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us, because we did not consult him about the proper order. So the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. And the children of the Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders by his poles, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Verse 25. So David, the elders of, the, of Israel, and the captains over thousands went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with joy. And so it was when God helped the Levites who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord that they offered seven bulls and seven rams. David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as were all the Levites who bore the ark, the singers, and Shania, Shania, the music master with the singers. David also wore a linen ephod. Thus all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn, with trumpets and with cymbals, making music with stringed instruments and harps. Well, obviously he figured it out. And he did bring the ark in, and so it did have a good, a good and a right ending. But we have been, in, in this series, we have been trying to come up with some lessons that we can learn from these stories in the life of David. And, and as I look at this one, I, I, I can see two. There may, there may be a lot, but I, I see two that I want to share with you this morning. Two lessons from this story. Number one, in any endeavor, we need to seek God's way. In any endeavor, we need to seek God's way. And number two, in any endeavor, God's way is the only right way. So let's think about those two things and see if you don't see those in this passage. First of all, in any endeavor, we need to seek God's way first. Now, one of the, one of the obvious things that we see in this passage is that something went wrong, right? One of the obvious things that jumps out is for some reason God was displeased and poor Uzzah experienced God's wrath as a result. And we read into chapter 15, we read it, we understand what the problem was, don't we? We understand that the problem was that even though they were moving the ark, that was, that was a fine thing, that was a good thing, bringing the ark back to Jerusalem, but they were doing it in a wrong way. They were moving it in a method different than that which was prescribed by God. And David recognized that. In chapter 15 and verse 13, he says, because we didn't do it the right way the last time, that's why we had this problem. Notice how they did it, verse number 5 of chapter 13. It says, David gathered all Israel together from Shihor in Egypt to as far as the entrance of Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kirjath-Jerim. And David and all Israel went up to Bala, to Kirjath-Jerim, which belonged to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of the Lord, who dwells between the cherubim. So they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab and Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. They got a shiny new cart, all brand new. You'd think that would be honoring. You'd think that would be good. And they put the ark on that cart and hauled it toward Jerusalem. And many of us would look at this and we would say, well, what in the world's wrong with that? It's not like they took some old crummy thing that still had ox manure all over it or something and put it on there. They got a brand new shiny cart. You would think that would be a good thing. What could possibly be wrong with that? And the answer is everything was wrong with that. The ark was the holiest object in all of Israel. And God had given very specific and detailed instructions 
about how they were to deal with the ark and how they were to move it. For example, in Exodus chapter 25 and verse 14, he said, You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them. In another place, he said it's to be carried on the shoulders of the Levites. He had even specifically warned against doing exactly what Uzzah did. What did Uzzah do? He touched it. That's all he did. God struck him dead. And God had given very specific warning about that. He said in Numbers chapter 4, when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set to go, then the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them, but they shall not touch any holy thing, lest they die. And so in light of these things, it seems quite clear what the problem was. We have to ask ourselves a question. What in the world was wrong with David? Why did he go down this road? Why did he make such a colossal blunder in the first place? Did he not know? These things. And I think there are a few possibilities for why David might have made this mistake. And one of them is, no, he he might not have known. It's very possible, matter of fact, very likely, that he was unfamiliar with the scripture concerning the treatment of the ark. And you're probably asking, how can that be? We're talking about David, he's the man after God's own heart. But think about it. Think about what had been happening with the ark. Think about the history of this piece of furniture. Let me read you a quote. Maybe it'll make it clearer. One man said that ancient symbol of the presence of the true king had passed through many vicissitudes since the days it had been carried around the walls of Jericho. In the degenerate times of the judges, it had been superstitiously carried into battle as though it were merely a magical mascot. And righteously did God mock their impious expectations. The ark of God fell into the hands of the Philistines. The Philistines carried it in triumph through their cities and then housed it in the temple of Dagon. But again, Jehovah vindicated his honor honor, and the ark was sent back to Israel in dismay. It had been joyfully welcomed by the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. Then alas, unholy curiosity moved them to look within it and the Lord smote them with a great slaughter. And the ark was then removed to the forest seclusion of Kerjath-Jerim, which means the city or village of the woods. And placed in the house of Abinadab where it lay neglected and forgotten for over 50 years. As David said in verse 3, during the days of Saul, they inquired not at it. Another historian described the history of the ark like this. The Philistines had captured the ark at Shiloh. That's 1 Samuel chapter 4. They had exhibited it for several months in Philistia, 1 Samuel chapter 6. And then returned it to Israel where it was housed at Beth Shemesh, 1 Samuel 6, and Kerjeth Jerem. For about a hundred years, from about 1104 to 1003 B.C. And so it's somewhat understandable, is it not, that David might not have known because it had fallen into such disuse. Most people had forgotten it even existed. And they certainly had forgotten the commands about how they ought to deal with the ark. But as our law enforcement friends amongst us this morning will attest, ignorance of the law is absolutely no defense. And the fact that he was ignorant of the right way to deal with the ark uh, did not change the fact that there was a problem in what he was doing and as he paid the price. You know what, brothers and sisters, we need to know our Bibles. We need to know our Bibles. We can have wonderful services in this place. And this morning is an example. We've had a wonderful time in that Lord's house this morning. Great music, sweet fellowship. David's service here had all that. Did you read all the musicians? Did you read all the pomp, all of the wonderful worship that took place? But what was lacking was knowledge of the Word of God. What was lacking 
was the Bible. One man said in the fervency of his zeal, David ignored the precepts of God. You know, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And he also said, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The Bible has to be there. I mowed my lawn yesterday. I don't get to do that very often. It's usually this high the time I finally get to mow it. But I mowed my lawn. And I do something that I'm sure all of you do when you mow your lawn. I put on my headset and I listen to sermons while I, while I mow. How many of you do that? Oh, come on. It's a great way. A great way to mow the lawn. Yesterday I was listening to a sermon by a speaker that was speaking in the Dallas Theological Seminary Chapel. And I got so convicted by this sermon, I almost had to stop and get off the mower. The speaker was talking about technology. He was talking about iPads and iPods and iPhones and Androids and laptops and Bible software and the Internet and all that stuff. And I was thinking, amen. But then he got into a, a, a rant that really got me. Because he started talking about the fact, you know, the Bible says we're supposed to store his word in our heart. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And then he pointed out the fact that so many of us, and of course he was, he was preaching to a bunch of preachers there at the, at the seminary. He said so many of us, uh, we have 57 different translations of the Bible on our iPad. Amen. Or we've got Bible software. And he even mentioned the one that I use, Logos Bible software. Brother Ray likes that one too. You know, it's got hundreds of commentaries and all that out there. I'm just thinking, all oh, this stuff is great. And he says, you know what? We are becoming a generation of preachers, a generation of Christians that can go to our technology and show somebody where to look. But how much of it is in here? And how much of it have we actually internalized? How much of it have we stored up? And I thought, amen. He's speaking to me. You see, we need the Bible. We need it in our homes. We need it in our hearts. We need to read it. We need to bleed it. It needs to be central to our being. So that we know what God says about things. David would one day sing. In Psalm chapter 138. He would one day sing. You have magnified your word. Above all your name. And if he had known the word. On this day. Uzzah might not have died. So perhaps he just was unfamiliar with the scripture related to the ark. Another possible reason he might have messed up is is perhaps he was influenced by the culture of the day. Do you find it interesting, as I do, that they used a new cart? Where did he come up with that idea? I mean, okay, so he didn't understand what the scripture said, but where did he come up with the idea to use a new cart? I find that very interesting because the fact is the method had been used once before. In 1 Samuel chapter 6, we read, Now therefore make a new cart. Take two milk cows, which have never been yoked, and hitch the cows to the cart, and take their calves home away from them. Then take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart. Do you remember the history? The Philistines had captured the ark. They had paraded it around their cities. God had poured out horrendous judgment upon them. And in desperation, they had said, we've got to get rid of this thing. And they sent it back to Israel. And they are the ones who said, let's set it on a new cart and send it back. The Philistines used a new cart to move the ark. Could David have learned it there? 
Where else could he have picked up the idea? It's no place else in the Bible. David had spent some time, an awful lot of time, over the last few years with the Philistines, and they were the last ones to have ever moved the ark. We can't be dogmatic about it, but it's interesting to think about, isn't it? Perhaps he was influenced by his culture, or the culture of the day. And while we're thinking about that, let's remind ourselves that if he had point number one right, if he knew what the Bible said in the first place, he would have never been influenced by the culture to make that mistake. He would have known the right from the wrong. We follow the world to do evil because we don't have familiarity with what the Bible says. We won't do that if we learn our Bibles. Well, so perhaps he was influenced by the culture of the day. But then number three, and this one's not a perhaps, this one's a definite. Clearly, one of the reasons that David messed up, maybe the main reason he messed up and allowed this mistake to occur, is because he did not seek God's will first. Glaringly obvious here, isn't it, as we read this account? He sought advice from nearly everybody else. He asked everybody's opinion, but not God's. You can go back and study it on your own, and you'll see that in, in, in previous incidents in his life, he had certainly asked God. There was a couple of incidents where he was... Uh, going to battle against the Philistines and in in those cases he specifically said to God should I go? In one case God said yes and in another case God said no but David asked and in this case we don't see that he probably didn't talk to God at all he consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds, verse number one He, he consulted with every leader, he consulted with all the assembly of Israel, verses one and two but not God not with God you know, we talk a lot about prayer in this church. We believe in prayer here. We have things like our monthly men's prayer breakfast where we do a lot of eating, but we also do some prayer. And we have a midweek prayer meeting, which, frankly, I, I wish more people would attend because I believe it is the single most important thing we do in this place when we just get together. And especially when the days when we have all four corners of the church, people praying at the same time. Hallelujah. It's when we believe in prayer. Because the Bible tells us that God answers prayer. My life verse is call unto me. I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things that thou knowest not. And he's proven it to me over and over again. We believe in prayer. And David believed in prayer. But in this instance, he didn't pray. Didn't talk to God. And you know, as I thought about this, I thought, I can relate to David in this case. And maybe you can too. You know, most of us have no trouble if we're going to battle against the Philistine. Most of us have no trouble when something big and bad is going on in our life and crying out to God and asking for his help. Should I do this or help me with this? But you see, it's in our day-to-day service. The little mundane routine things. Don't, don't, we, don't we kind of get in a routine and we find ourselves sometimes not even thinking about it? Just doing what we've always done. See, I think about that with respect to my preaching. I have to come up with a sermon every single Sunday of the world. And I'll finish one Sunday and I'll think, that's over. And just like that, it's the next Sunday. I have to come up with a Sunday, uh, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And it's very easy to get into a routine. Especially when you preach like, like we do here, where we have a series that we're going through so I know what the next passage is going to be. And I can just pick up my Bible and I can say, all right, let's get right down to this. And let's start working on the next service. And yet, I ought to pray about it first, shouldn't I? 
It's a something that I ought, ought to ask God about. And sometimes I find myself, just as David, this is a good thing. This was a good thing, bringing back the ark. Uh, well, let's just go ahead and get on with it. But he needed to consult God first. We need to talk to God before we take any step in life, even the good things, even the routine things. We need to pray. We need to seek God's face. We need to know what God wants us to do. It was Mary Kidder who wrote in 1876 these words that we've sung them so many times. Ere you left your room this morning, did you think to pray? In the name of Christ our Savior, did you sue for loving favor as a shield today? When you met with great temptation, did you think to pray? By his dying love and merit, did you claim the Holy Spirit as your guide and stay? When your heart was filled with anger, did you think to pray? Did you plead for grace, my brother, that you might forgive another who had crossed your way? And when sore trials came upon you, did you think to pray? When your soul was bowed in sorrow, balm of Gilead did you borrow at the gates of day? Oh, how pray rests the weary. Prayer will change the night to day, so when life seems dark and dreary, don't forget to pray. And we could add another verse to that, couldn't we? Ere you begin your work for Jesus, did you think to pray? Before you took a single step today, did you think to pray? See, I can't help but think that if David would have simply asked God's uh, thoughts on this thing, uh, before undertaking this task, just as he did before he went to battle with Philistines, Uzzah would not have died. Well, so our first lesson this morning is in any, de- in any endeavor, we need to seek God's way. The second lesson that we learn from this story is, in any endeavor, God's way is the only right way. You know what? It just matters not a bit that our shiny new cart looks perfectly acceptable to us. It just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that Uzzah was a very nice man, and he may have been. It doesn't matter that his heart was pure. It doesn't matter that he might have had motives that were honorable in reaching out toward the ark. God had said how the ark was to be moved, and that was the only acceptable way to move it. And God had said, don't touch the ark lest you die. And Uzzah touched the ark. God's way is the only way. Now, in our relativistic age, people struggle mightily with this. In America, we don't want to believe that. We want to believe that all roads lead to heaven. We want to believe that all religions have some greater truth in them. We want to believe that everybody is somewhat right. But no, that's not what the Bible says. God's way is the only way. I, I, I hope I said that clearly enough. God's way is the only way. A few of us are going to be attending the basics conference starting tomorrow at Parkside Church. And I would ask you to pray for us as we go because hopefully it will be a time of refreshment and learning. It will be good. But I mentioned it this morning because it's hosted by Alistair Begg. And I've heard Alistair Begg say many, many, many times that the world will be tolerant of Christianity up until the point where it starts to claim exclusivity. And it's true. You know, you can say to somebody, that, to anybody, that Jesus is a great teacher. And nobody will fight you on that. Everybody will probably say amen. Yes, a good man. You can even say things like, you know, I believe that, that Jesus said, you must be born again. And the world will say, 
yeah, that's, that's okay. They won't understand what they're talking about, but they won't be too upset about it. But then you say something like this. Jesus said, I am the only way. He said on, in John chapter 14 and verse number 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And they're going to bristle. Quote to the Max chapter 4 and verse number 12, Neither is there salvation in any other. There is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. And see how tolerant they are of that. Try quoting or pressing home the truth that he that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. And the world's tolerance will evaporate in the face of that exclusive claim. You see, whether we want to admit it or not, God's way, it is the only way. You don't get to come up with a better way. You don't get to choose what you think is more convenient. You don't get to substitute your shiny new cart for what God has already said to do. You don't get to do that. God's way is the only way to ever see heaven. It's the only way to be saved. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's God's way. What does that mean to the person then who has not called upon the name of the Lord? It means that they are not saved. Have you done that? If you have not, then you are lost. You don't get to make up your own way. Jesus said you must be born again. Must. There is no other way. You need to place your faith and trust in Jesus. You need to call upon him and ask him for the salvation that he so freely offers. Any other way is a shiny new card. It looks good to us, but it doesn't work. God's way is also the only way to live and live rightly. It's the only way to live in a way that pleases him. We quoted his words a little bit earlier and from John chapter 14 when he said, If you love me, keep my commandments. We Christians today, especially here in America, we want to pick and choose which of those commandments we're going to keep, don't we? We don't want anybody giving us a list of things. We don't want anybody telling us what we can and cannot do. And yet, is your Bible different than mine? Mine is filled with instruction. Of what we can and cannot, should and should not do in living for the Lord Jesus Christ. God's way is the only way to live and live rightly. We don't get to substitute our shiny new cart for God's poles. And now that I've opened this can of worms, let me share with you one of my pet peeves. You ready for one of my pet peeves? I don't do this very often. One of my pet peeves is the misuse of the word legalism in evangelical Christian circles today. I have gotten to the point where I almost despise that word. I just, I just, do you know that word's not found in the Bible? Do you know that? It doesn't exist. You'd think it must surely be there considering the number of books that have been written and the number of preachers who stand up and preach about it. You'd think it ought to be in there. But it's not there. Not a word. Now there's a grain of truth in what they say about it. If by legalism you mean adding something to Jesus' finished work on the cross of Calvary, then okay, I'll say yes. That, that is problematic. We are saved by grace and by grace alone. But you see, that's not what most people are referring to when they're referring to legalism. The only possible true definition of legalism could be found in Acts chapter 15. Uh, Acts chapter 15 and verse number 1. Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the law, the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And unless that phrase is included, it, it's, not, it's, not, it's not legalism. It's not right. Legalism is saying you have to add something to salvation 
in order to be saved. If I were to say to you this morning, you cannot be saved unless you follow this list of do's and don'ts that I give you. Well, okay, I'll accept that as a, a bad thing. That's legalism we ought not to have. But it's not legalism for me to say to you that the Bible prescribes a list of do's and don'ts that every Christian ought to obey. That is not legalism. That's holiness. That's obedience. That's Bible Christianity. You know, I wasn't going to include this little rant in my sermon this morning. I was really stressed about this. I thought, should I say this? Should I not say this? Should I go down this road? I'll probably run off half the church. But then I was reading Twitter. And, and I, I confess, I follow some people on Twitter, and I follow John Piper on Twitter. And I saw John Piper this morning tweeted this. He said this, quote, stop calling obedience to Jesus legalism. Exclamation point. And so I thought, well, amen. With that little bit of validation, I'm going to go ahead and include this rant. You know what legalism is today, as it's defined by most Christians today? It is a man-made excuse for nominal Christians to avoid obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it is. Well, let me wipe the froth. Sorry. Two lessons we've learned this morning then from, from David. And one of them is, in any endeavor... We need to seek God's way first. But the second is, in any endeavor, God's way is the only right way. I hope we learn those lessons this morning. I hope I learned those lessons this morning. And I know some might be bothered by those truths today. And some might think them harsh. Some might think it a narrow and a restricted point of view. But you know, nothing is further from the truth. We're never going to go wrong to do things God's way, ever. When David went back to the Bible and he learned what God's way was and he, he brought the ark in according to God's way, did, did you notice what the result was? We read it in chapter 15 and verse 25. It says, David, the elders of Israel and the captains over thousands went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with joy. Joy. That's the result when we do things God's way. It's not a hardship. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. My, my, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Doing things God's way is never the wrong way. Always the right way. And so I wonder this morning about you. Are you living according to God's way? Or is your life characterized by some shiny new cart? You think you'll make up your own way? Let's do it God's way. It's the only right way. And it's the only way wherein there is joy.